Welcome to another episode of the Lessons from the Cockpit podcast. I am your host, Mark Hassara, and for over 60 years, my passion has been everything aviation. I love airplanes. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we interview some of the most incredible pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Our purpose of the show is to hear their stories, but more importantly, what did they learn from these extreme and extraordinary experiences, both in in the military, commercial, and private aviation realms. This exploration gives us a better understanding of how does the aviation world work and improves critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. But you know what? One of the most important thing is we allow vets to tell their stories and some of these are extraordinary and you're going to hear a really extraordinary one today. As a matter of fact, this is going to be two episodes because I recorded over two hours and 40 minutes of conversation. Conversation. The Lessons from the Cockpit Show is sponsored by Wallpilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, and hangar. And please, folks, go to wallpilot.com and take a look at some of these things. They come in four, six, eight-foot lengths. We've done up to 30 for a guy that has a really large hangar. And these are really detailed prints printed on vinyl that you can peel off and stick to the walls of your home, office, or hangar. All of our financial support for the show is from Wallpilot wall pilot and my book tanker pilot lessons from the cockpit which you can find in all four formats on amazon and this and previous episodes of my podcast are found on my website marcasera.com on this and the next episode you're going to learn some really fascinating things about the sea king helicopter that was the navy's primary rotary wing aircraft on carriers cruisers destroyers for decades and some of it's going to really surprise you so grab an adult beverage of your choice sit down strap in and let's talk with steve bates about s3 sea king helicopters oh thanks for being on with us today well thank you mark it is a privilege absolute privilege to be here why don't you tell all of my listeners a little bit about your background? Okay. Um, I am originally from all over the Northeast. I was born outside of Philadelphia. My father was in the Navy at the time, but he resigned his commission uh, and went into the airlines when I was two years old. So I don't really have memories of that. He flew back in the late 50s. He flew the uh, F. 2H2 Banshee, and then later flew the early version of the A4 Skyhawk. Um, But he was two and he resigned. He was on a reserve commission, so he resigned. Moved to upstate New York, right about the geographic center of the state, a little town called Whitesboro outside of Utica. And I grew up most of my youth there, spent about eight years. And then I moved to New England, where I went to high school in Milford, Massachusetts, until I graduated in 1980. And then I went away to college at Jacksonville, Florida, on a Naval ROTC scholarship. Bit of an ironic story to that, because the the ROTC program at Jacksonville landed in their campus in 1971. And that was because the Vietnam War protesters ensured that it got kicked off the campus at Harvard. So it showed up in Jacksonville. So in kind of a twisted irony, I owe my rich 21-year career to Vietnam War protesters. They might not like that. (laughs) Up yours, dudes! (laughs) Yeah. I only thought about it recently. Within the last year or two, I was like, oh, isn't that funny? It's a great Uh, story, 
Yeah, it is. It really is kind of a funny, you know, the, the twisted tales we tell, so to speak. Um, anyway, graduated from Jacksonville University with a BS in political science and a commission in 1984, reported to Pensacola, Florida uh, in July of 84 to begin flight training, completed my primary and intermediate training flying the T-34 Charlie version, the Mentor, um, at Naval Air Station in Whiting Field, North Whiting Field in Milton, Florida, outside of Pensacola. Then I went on to fly uh, to start the helicopter training program. Let's see, that was with Training Squadron 8, HT-8 out of Southfield on the opposite side of the base. Got got winged in February of 1986, then reported to Jacksonville, Florida for my first squadron. This was Helicopter Anti-Submarine Squadron 1, uh, the short hand designator was HS1. Uh, that was back in Jacksonville where I started training to fly the H3 Sea King. Then I went from there. What happened was that squadron, which is its core competency was, as I said, anti-submarine warfare. Uh, they had a, a portion of that squadron that was called the Sea Component, which did more logistics and utility type work. So it was assigned to them. Uh, and then that squadron would, or that portion of the squadron would kind of break off along with portions of two other squadrons to become a newly established squadron up in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, that happened in April, 1987, Helicopter Combat Support Squadron 2. So the uh, the irony here is the H3C King is very well known for its anti-submarine warfare. I'll, I'll refer to it as ASW from here on out. Uh, it is known for the ASW mission, but I did not fly that mission. I was the in the helicopter combat support community, uh, much better known by the CH-46 tandem rotor helicopter, which uh, if people are unfamiliar, it, it's kind of a smaller version of the Army's CH-47 Chinook tandem rotor, the redheaded stepchild of the community, so to speak, flying the Flying bullfrogs. Uh, yeah, I didn't fly those, but that's what that community was known best for. You know, they yeah. were, you said, helicopter combat support, and you were talking about the, what the Marines called the frogs, uh, but the H-46, they were known as the sea knight in Navy terminology. Mm -hmm. So that was my first squadron. I would deploy in uh, on very short notice in late July of 1987. Uh, unfortunately, um, I just turned over my responsibilities as duty officer for the squadron, and I had flown down to Jacksonville, Florida, because the simulator for the H-3 was still there, and uh, I'd heard there was some simulator time available, and I thought, Jacksonville, you know, went to school there, was stationed there, loved the city, sure, I'll go back and get some training. Um, but when I got there, uh, I was told, when I was checking into the officer's quarters, I was told at the front desk, you need to call your sister squadron here. And I thought, okay, no big deal. And I call, and because I had been assigned to that squadron, I knew some of the people, and of course, the duty officer. Uh, his name is also- no good could have come from this. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's not a happy ending, this one. So this guy's name was also Steve. And I said, hey, Steve, what's up? He said, Steve, I can't talk about it. Uh, you need to call your home base. So right away, I know something's up. So I call back to the duty officer who I had just handed off to about four hours prior. And he said, Steve, I can't talk about it. Your family is fine. You need to come home and pack. And I thought, oh, that's not good at all. And right at that point, Mark, the operations officer of the squadron grabbed the phone from him and said, Steve, the Desert Duck, which is the, the affectionate name we gave the aircraft that was forward deployed to Bahrain International Airport. He said, the Desert Duck crashed. The two pilots were killed. You need to come home and pack. You are deploying tomorrow. Oh, so that's, no. Yeah, that's my introduction to the, uh, to the Navy. What did you Rather tell so your wife? Well, I was not even dating my wife at the time. I was single. Oh. 
Oh, happened. He didn't hear this story till years Fortunately. later. Um, I had to tell, you know, my family, my, my mother and sister and so forth, but um, wasn't married. So I didn't have to leave that, you know, immediate type of yeah. family behind. With that. Off I went to Bahrain for six months on very, very short notice. Um, that was, you know, the Navy, they call our first deployment tour, you know, that's your nugget tour as a pilot. It was it was a learning curve in a big way. Um, there was some, you know, there were some good times. There were some bad times, um, but I learned a lot. There were some fascinating things that happened out there when I was flying. Uh, I'll share one story with you. I was only there. I don't think I was there a month, Mark, maybe two. And we got scheduled to launch. We had two different launch windows. Uh, the first one was at 1030 at night. And the second one, I think, was like two or three thirty in the morning. And we had a bunch of Department of the Army civilians on board, and they had a bunch of big black boxes with them, and they had headsets on in the back in the cabin. So they were clearly listening to something. We didn't know what. At the time, you may recall, 1987, this is pre-Desert Storm. Um, it's Operation Earnest Will, reflag tanker escort. The Armenians and the Iraqis are at each other's throats. I'm there um, so we something the AWACS that same time. Really? I'm refueling the E3 AWACS out of Riyadh at that same time, 87, wow. that summer. That's wow. the that's when the USS Stark got smacked. Right, right. And th this detachment I'm talking about, they responded. They were providing firefighting equipment, uh, medical supplies, because the, the Stark had like a 17-degree port list, as I recall. So they couldn't even land. They just had to hoist down that, that equipment to them. So, um the pictures so of the happens. USS Stark, the pictures, Steve, of the USS Stark after it got hit, you know, they were all over the news where it's smoking and you can see that big list. I mean, it was it was tragic. Yeah, it was bad, bad news. That was not a good time. These guys, we find out later that they were listening to the Iranians um, because, and we were aware that they were working on um, a mine laying operation in the Gulf. And when they did this, because we had been listening to them and tracking them, um, the army was out there with their 160th SOAR, I believe. Yeah. I think it was AH2s that were standing by. Mm -hmm. And when they saw them put mines in the water, they radioed the flagship at the time out there. Uh, I think it was USS LaSalle. Told them, we see them dropping mines. And they were told weapons free. So they shot up that boat. Uh, I think I sent you a picture of that after it's you been did. flagged with a U.S. flag. And I saw some of those guys later. Some of those uh, people survived. They were injured. Uh, they were treated on the USS Guadalcanal. And I've got pictures of them on the flight deck and, and stretchers being loaded onto 46s in front of me. You sent me a picture um, of that, too. So that was kind of uh, an interesting, you know, first experience, you know, in a deployment. I, I know you look for lessons learned here, lessons from the cockpit. Uh, that doesn't come until a little bit later. So about halfway through this Bahrain tour, the way the forward deployment concept works, you know, these weren't, you know, they didn't deploy with the air wing. So the aircraft stayed at Bahrain International Airport and the, the air crew and the maintainers cycled through in a staggered uh, rotation. So about my halfway point, I'm getting a new officer in charge out there. Um, I'm flying with him one day and we're, we're very busy. We're bouncing around from ship to ship, delivering, you know, cargo and parts and so forth. And at one point I looked down at the fuel gauges and I noticed, you know, we're getting low. So I said to him, uh, we should get some gas at this next stop. We're getting low on fuel. Now, if you were flying with me, Mark, would you think that was an unreasonable thing to say? No, absolutely not. Particularly right. flying out over the water 
in basically enemy territory. Yeah. Well, I didn't think so either, but he ripped my head off. Uh, I will clean up. I'll clean up the language a bit, but he said, damn it, Steve, I'm the 04. You're the 02. You sit there and shut up. And I was a little stunned. Well, more than a little stunned. I was just completely perplexed at that reaction. And then I was furious because it's a multi-piloted aircraft. It's not an F-18 or an F-16 where one person, one pilot's making all decisions. So I was not happy with that. It's like, this is a multi-piloted aircraft and this is not going to work. You know, he says something like that. And of course the walls go up and now this communication is broken down. Not a good place to be in a multi-piloted aircraft. Nope. I get back to the airport. We land and I, as quick as I can, I am unstrapped and I am out of my seat and I'm headed to the scheduling officer. And I said to him, I said, Ted, I can't fly with this guy anymore. Well, Ted had some experience with this guy. Um, and he told me, he said, Steve, here's what you do. Whenever you're suggesting something like that to him, just say it in a way that makes it sound like it's his idea. Um, so at the time, this term emotional intelligence that we hear about today was not a thing. But as I look back, I realized that was you know the early a first experience for me. And I was relating this story that I just shared with you, Mark, uh, about three years ago with a guy I was working with. I was on travel. I was out in Southern California and we were sitting outside at a restaurant eating dinner. And as I was telling this story, I stopped in mid-sentence because I finally connected some dots that I hadn't in over three decades. So here's the backstory. Before this guy came out, uh, we were hearing some stories about something that happened back in Norfolk. And the story was he was on a training flight. And he was in the fuel pits waiting to hot refuel with the engines running, the blades spinning. And he had low fuel caution lights at the time. The tail of the aircraft was sticking out partially over the runway. So he had an obstructed runway situation. The tower asked him if he could take it around once in the pattern because there was another helicopter on a four mile or so final. As you well know, the appropriate answer should have been unable well, he did. He taxied out of the pits, and we heard that when he made his crosswind turn, he flamed out an engine. Um, he was forced, what we heard was he had to do a mea culpa to the squadron wardroom, to the ready room, and basically say, here's what I did. Don't do this in the future. It's not a good idea. I did not think at the time I said that, that talking about fuel was such a sensitive issue for him. And would Had trigger I him like that, that. that a little bit more? Yeah, I probably would have handled it differently, um, but I was just stunned. So that was one of my first lessons in learning to talk to people based on where they're at, you know, based on their makeup. You know, you can't approach everyone the same way. Like I said, that was probably emotional intelligence before it was a term where I had to learn to say, hey, do you think we should get some gas uh, at this next stop and let it be his idea and let him make the decision? But isn't that being a, you know, that's, that's typical of being on a crude airplane. KC-135 is the same thing. I flew with a couple of folks that would get triggered and uh, it wasn't a fun cockpit to be in. Let's put it that way. And I was deployed once when this happened. You know, you talk about emotional intelligence. That is a real key sometimes when you're in these really, really crappy situations when you're in the air about, Hey, how's your crew doing? How's your crew feeling? Because as you know, certain as you just said, certain people take stress completely differently than the rest of us. Right. And right. And, it, it, and I think, Steve, that's also a great life lesson. I learned later in life was to be more aware of the people around me. 
and what they might yes. be feeling and doing and Amen what's going on that. Same thing, same thing. I'm realizing the way you approach someone can really defuse a tense situation if you handle it properly. Yeah, and when you have those kind of people that are, um, let's say, outrank you or above you, you said some great right. words there. Make them think it was their idea. <laughs> right. Leading up is a term we hear these days. Um, yeah. Influencing up. That was, uh, thank God for my buddy, Ted, there, who, who, who gave me that bit of advice because it really helped me get through those next. Geez, I still had two to three months left on that uh, detachment before I went back home. So, but it was, yeah, quite a lesson learned there. Kind of a hard way, but it was, it was a good one. Yeah, but you know what? I look at back at Steve at some of the lessons I learned, and it was from the school of hard knocks. Oh, that was stupid. Yeah. How did I do it that way? Or man, that was not a way to deal with that situation with that person. And sometimes the school of hard knocks uh, can be a very cruel teacher, but man, it can be a great lesson giver, can it? It, it really is. And you remind me of something I, I heard when I was at the Naval War College years later. In, as far as the Naval War College, you know, in 1975, they changed the curriculum where they, because the officers could not objectively talk about the Vietnam War. They were still, it was still too raw. They were struggling with it. And so they changed it to the Peloponnesian War, you know, ancient Greece. But I remember one of the professors there saying the lessons of failure are far more enduring. So that's where I think we learn our best lessons is through those difficult experiences for sure. Boy, no truer words have ever been spoken, haven't they, than that, what you just quoted. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so talk to our listeners a little bit about this logistic support that you do with your helicopter, because this is a fascinating thing to watch. I have been on two aircraft carriers when they were underway replenishing, one off the coast of California, one off the coast of Pakistan. And this is an amazing thing to watch. Talk to us a little bit about how you do this logistic support from ship to ship and ship to shore uh, for my listeners to uh, understand how that works. Sure. So, first of all, in the aircraft I flew when I was in Bahrain, it well, we could land on just about every ship. There was one cruiser out in the Gulf at the time. I think it was the Richmond K. Turner. We could not land on too small a deck. We could land on most of them. And we'd offload, you know, parts and people. And of course, the most precious thing for people out there was mail. Uh, there was no email back in 1987. And that's why I think this detachment, the Desert Ducks, was far better known and more famous than the actual parent squadron back in Norfolk. And I think that chafed on commanding officers at times. Uh, but that was the truth. Uh, and that's what we did. And it was very busy out there because, again, pre-Desert Storm, but some of us out there felt like, well, the Navy's been kind of inserted in the middle of a war zone between two warring factions, and it, it ain't real fun. So it was very busy. We're bouncing from ship to ship. Um, but to address what I think you said you have observed when you were on the Kennedy yeah. years ago, again, the, the community I'm from is best known for the CH-46 Sea Knight tandem rotor helicopter. And tell me if this is what you saw, but uh, underway replenishment at sea they will bring a supply ship alongside typically the carrier um, and they'll start, they'll send over lines and then they'll start passing pallets and whatever back and forth. At the same time, often the CH-46s 
are over on the, the aft deck of that supply ship and they're sling loading, they're picking up pallets of ammo, whether it's missiles and bombs and so forth or food or whatever the supply need is. And they are lifting those up and slinging them over to the deck of the aircraft carrier and dropping them. And they go back and forth. And it is uh, sort of like the flight deck itself. It's kind of a well-orchestrated dance that happens. And it's it's just fascinating to watch. I have always thought that you know watching the replenishment and as well as flight deck operations on a carrier, to me, are still to this day, one of the most fascinating things you can ever watch. Oh, it's incredible to watch, Steve, because yeah. the helos, they had a sea night, but the MH60s were doing it too, certain things. They were slinging pallets of bombs, slinging pallets of parts, slinging ba- uh, big nets full of boxes and stuff. And this went on for six hours. Yeah. Six hours they went, you know? And like I mentioned yeah. to you before we started talking, uh, one of the lieutenants didn't show up to for his assignment in the Ox Con. And <laughs> the captain says, hop in there, Sluggo, drive the ship. You know, and I said, with all due respect, sir, are you out of your mind? You know, and everybody up in the Oxcon are like, you're not going to let Air Force do this, right? But he did. And what a great learning experience. 18 knots. We're doing about 18 knots, you know, 271 heading. And watching those lines go across, the guy shooting the lines across and then getting hooked up was amazing to watch. And it's like, we do this all the time. You know, it's not a big deal, you know, but for somebody who had never seen it before and watching this happen, it was incredible. And I'm going to try and see if I can find uh, a few pictures. I'll put in the show notes for all of my listeners so that you can see this. And the amazing thing was, Steve, there was a ship on the other side. Right. And parts and things were going both ways which was just an amazing thing to see. And I remember John F. Kennedy had to do it. I think they said every three days, every three days they went through this 6,000 hamburger patties and 6,000 hot dogs went over that day. And the JFK was not a nuclear powered carrier, but even with a nuclear powered carrier, it can steam for years and years without needing, you know, nuclear fuel again, but you still got to feed the troops, you got to feed the crew, you've got to, you know, re- replenish bombs and missiles and so forth to, to allow the war fight to continue. So, yeah, it's an amazing thing. It really is. And I, if I remember right, I've got a picture of a sea knight dropping 17 bags of mail in a net on the deck of the, of the John F. Kennedy. And I remember yeah. the air boss screaming over the are saying over the radio. All right, guys, there's the mail bags. All of us got a lot of mail. There's 17 bags, you know. And of course, you know, people don't understand. There's even a post office in the carrier. And they were right. having to sort all that stuff. And and uh it's an amazing thing to watch. It really is. It is like a little city at sea. <laughs> it, it really is. So did you fly uh the Sea Knights and the uh Sea Kings while you were deployed or just the Sea Kings? I just flew the Sea Kings. I never did fly the Sea Knights. Um, my airframes were limited to, as I mentioned in the training command, uh, the T-34, uh, the TH-57 Jet Ranger. Mm-hmm. Um, I also flew that as an instructor. So that's where more than half of my 3,200 total hours comes from. Uh, the other half, most of it is H-3 uh-huh. time. Uh, and then there's a little bit of... Uh, I got about 30 hours of Huey time, but the Navy's Hueys H1s were going away right about the time I was yeah. doing that. So, 
so Steve, you're an instructor at their replacement air group, as they call it, in the other places. You got to teach brand new guys then, right? I did. Now, the replacement air group, the RAG, or what is, that's an older terminology that yeah. kind of, I think, dates back to like World War II. But uh, the more modern term is the fleet replacement squadron. Mm-hmm. So those are the training squadrons for the actual fleet airframes that people will fly. I went back to Pensacola to the training command flying. It was not a fleet aircraft. It was the jet ranger that, you know, if you, you can Google that and police forces around the country and around the world have been flying those since I think the sixties, at least it's an old yeah. airframe been around a while. Yeah, sure. Has. Um, so I went back to Pensacola for a flight instructor tour, um, which was a good thing because, um, I came out of flight school as a student and I decided I asked to fly H-46s out of San Diego. Um, Part of that, (laughs) this is kind of funny, kind of selfish, but uh, we were hearing that Australian men treated their women terribly. And as a result, Australian women loved Americans. So we were like, woo, Port Collin, Perth, let's do it. So I wanted to get out to the West Coast and they said H3 is Jacksonville, Florida. So, oh, well, that's the way it worked. And part of that is how well you do in flight school. And I admittedly, uh, there was a period where I struggled, um, particularly with the instrument flying. It took a while for that light bulb to come on. So as a result, I, you know, I wasn't going to kid myself and try and select F-14s. But uh, so I got H-3s, but I went back to the training command. And Mark, life has a funny way of sometimes giving you second chances because Sure enough, I was an instrument flight instructor and I would become the wing standardization officer and model manager. So uh, I got to get very hone my skills very highly in instrument flight. So oh, that was my first Yeah. You know what, Steve? I struggled with uh, instrument flying to one thing, doing a fix to fix. I couldn't do a fix to fix in the T-38 to save my life. And then, and then on my like ride to see, should we keep him? Should we not? The light bulb came on. I did two of them and went within a quarter mile. But other than that, I was a really good instrument pilot, but you know, you're right. Sometimes those light bulbs uh, don't come on uh, as fast as other light bulbs come on. And then how long? Do, you're like, it. <laughs> yeah. So how long were you uh, in training? I'm sure you've got some great stories from training brand new students and things that you learned while you're at Pensacola. The Jet Ranger is a wonderful helicopter to fly. I mean, I remember seeing those things everywhere when I was a kid. Yeah. um, And they had a better avionics package than certainly the fleet aircraft I flew at the time. It's like, well, we don't have the same capability out in the fleet. But uh, surprisingly, I don't have as many like lessons or stories from the training command, at least with students. Um, Now you're you're always careful because in the case of helicopters, and of course the Jet Ranger that was like a, well, any helicopter with a collective, you're practicing, you know, you simulate engine failures and you make sure they get the collective down right away. And then you guard it to make sure that they bring the power back on before they try and raise that collective. And I did one time have a student try that on me and I was like, no, get the power up, bring the twist grip back up. But I think everyone's experienced that. Um, most of my lessons were actually fleet experience. My, that first squadron, so I'll, I'll get another one. That first squadron that I was in, HC2. So I finished my Bahrain detachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go back to the squadron for about six months. And then I go back out to our other detachment in Naples, Italy, which was in support of the Commander 6 Fleet, the three-star. He, basically, we had kind of a very plushed out limo. It was, you know, carpet and, you know, he had a special armchair seat in the back and so forth. So we were supporting him, getting him to where he needed to go. 
And one time we were not flying in support of him. We were, I can't remember why, but this was in, I remember the date specifically. It was February 13th, 1989. We were in at Naval Air Station Sigonella down in Sicily. And we headed back like mid late afternoon to go to Naples. It's about an hour, 20 minute flight back. Uh, got the weather brief, got our dash one brief. Cavalier to the moon was the forecast. There was absolutely no indication of any weather. Uh, we get up to Naples area and it's now dark. And we start calling Capitacino Tower near Naples and they're not answering. So we are circling the island of Capri and it's dark out. We don't realize clouds have moved in. Now it's raining. So we're like, okay, we, we can't do this for long. So the guy was flying with, he contacted Rome Approach and we got cleared for one of those old procedure turn instrument approaches. I think it was a localizer in New Capo. Yeah. And just as we get cleared, uh, we're now we're now in the goo. We are IMC the whole time at this point. And the guy I'm flying with, Scott, says to me, Steve, shine your flashlight on the windscreen. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. But as I'm reaching down for the flashlight and I'm snapping it from my vest, I'm thinking, oh, no, that's not good. And I shine it up. And sure enough, there's about an inch to an inch and a half thick layer of ice on the, on the, windscreen, oh. on the windscreen. And I'm thinking, this isn't good. Now, it's not covering all of it. I still have some visibility out of portion of the window. And about that time, uh, we break out into this sucker hole. And I look up and there's this towering wall of clouds. And I'm thinking, we cannot go 12 miles out and in on this approach. We're going to fall out of the sky. We just can't do it. And I was thinking, this is it, man. I'm not going to survive this night. Uh, I happened to look down and realize there is the airport. There's the runway right there. Um, <laughs> the guy was flying with tried Capitacino Tower again. And this time they came up. They were on the net. And I'll tell you what happened with that as well. Uh, anyway, we asked them for clearance for an emergency descent. And of course, you know, the, the language barrier, they say, understand you're declaring an emergency. I'm like, no, but if we don't get permission to descend now, we're going to have to. So they did that. And as we're descending, Mark, the ice is ripping off the aircraft and, and the sound it makes. I think the best way I could describe it is to hear a giant cardboard box being torn. It's just big. <laughs> oh, sound. No. And that's particularly scary in a helicopter, because if you get into imbalanced flight and that ice comes off, say, some of the blades, if it's building up on the blades, you can get in an unbalanced situation where the aircraft basically disintegrates. It eats itself up. Didn't happen, fortunately. We got on the ground and as grimy as Naples can be at times, I wanted to kiss it. Um, <laughs> get back to why Capo Tower finally came back up. There was a time years prior where the Americans and the Italians both occupied the tower. Well, politics being politics, uh, something happened where the Americans were moved over to a separate building and base operations, and only the Italians were in the tower. We were fortunate that night that a second-class petty officer, an air traffic controller, was listening. She heard us calling the tower, and she finally called over there and said, hey, you'll get a kick out of this because um, it, it, the humor is just it's corny as hell, but... Our call sign at the time was Ghost Rider. She said, Ghost Rider 741 is trying to contact you. And they said, apparently they told her, oh, we're just the monitoring a ground the frequency. So they finally came up. We got it on the ground, but that was kind of a scary thing for me. As far as lessons from that, you know, I thought about that for a long time. And I thought, we got a VFR flight or weather brief. There was no call for 
any type of icing or storms or anything. And as you know, you think, God, we did everything right. It's not like we got stupid and took shortcuts and got ourselves in a bind. But I suppose, you know, I, I guess the lesson here would be there's always something else you can do when you feel the gig is up. I look back and thought, okay, maybe when we were 30 minutes out or so or an hour out, we could have called the American base operations frequency and said, hey, we're on our way in. You might want to give Tower a heads up. And that might have avoided a whole lot of problem. And we could have gotten in ahead of that weather. So that was my one story. The H3 was old by that time and they worked out most of the kinks. So this was not related to the mechanics of the airframe, but it was a weather situation where I thought for a few minutes that I'm not going to make it out of this alive. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up, particularly with what happened to Kobe Bryant and his helicopter. Yeah. A very similar situation that didn't turn out so well. You know, maybe you can talk about that being a helo pilot, you know, particularly in that airspace around Los Angeles and the traffic that's going on. Uh, I don't know if you've read the report about that crash or anything like that, but. uh, I I read or heard about the initial findings. Mm -hmm. And when that first happened, um, the people I work with who know I was a former helicopter pilot said, what do you think? I said, if I had to guess right now without having all the facts, I said, I think this pilot got himself in instrument conditions and got disoriented in vertigo and basically flew a perfectly good airplane into the terrain, which is sounds like it's what happened. And you know what, Steve, uh, that's the exact same thing I came up with too. They were kind of on a VFR flight plan and all of a sudden they encounter clouds. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but I've had spatial disorientation in a airplane numerous times. I had once. Yep. Where I swore I was 30 degrees left bank. All right. Yeah. And I was flying in formation with a with in a T38. So we're going fast. And I remember telling oh, my geez. instructor, yeah. I remember telling my instructor, Dave Fouché, hey, Fucci, I feel like I'm in about a 30 degree left bank right now as we're going through the clouds. Because we had gone, we had gone into the clouds like this and then rolled out and my brain never caged. And uh, yeah, like you said, spatial disorientation happens in little airplanes, big airplanes, fast airplanes, slow airplanes, helicopters. And what do they always tell you when you get spatial D? You're an instructor. What do they always tell you? Trust your instruments. Yeah. Trust yeah. your instruments. I hear you, Mar. I did the same thing once in the H3 at night on instruments. I was in the left seat and I looked down to, I don't do it set the transponder or change a radio frequency. And when I snapped my head back up, I was all goofed up and I felt like I was in a left-hand turn. So I had to tell the guy I was with, you got it. I'm, I'm, I'm screwed up. Just keep it flight straight and level here for a while. Yeah. And, and you know what? My instructor, my T-38 instructor, Steve, made me keep flying the jet. He says, no, uh-uh. you, you keep flying this. Okay. This is going to be really, really excellent education and training for you. Yeah. And so we flew for another several minutes until we turned on to final. We were doing a formation wing landing in the T-38. And he says, no, you keep flying. That's a sign of a really good instructor. My head is screwed up. Okay. What have we taught you? Trust your instruments. He is also an attitude indicator, your wingman, you know, your flight lead. And man, I had this conflict going on in my brain, Steve, that I thought, my body's saying you're flying into him when I wasn't because I thought I was like this 30 degrees of bank heading toward him. And the crazy thing was Steve, as soon as we broke out under the clouds and as soon as I could see the ground within nanoseconds, my head caged. Yeah. 
the brain's a fascinating thing the way it works. It had to be though? hard not to want to break away from him when you feel like you're flying into him. That well, had to and, be really difficult. And see, that was that was the dichotomy was okay, you have to stay on him because he is a really good attitude indicator right now, even though you think you're going to bump into it. And so that conflict is going on in your brain too. You have to stay with him, but you feel like you're about to run into him at the same time. And that whole conflict is going on inside your brain. As you well know, you've done this and and your head is just screaming to you. You're in 30 degrees of bank and you're three to six feet from another airplane. Yeah. Vertigo is hard enough, Mark, when you're alone. But if you're in a formation flight, oh, my God, there's just not much room for error at all. There really isn't. You know? Yeah. And it's funny because when I had vertigo later in my career, Steve, I remembered that. I remembered my instructor, Dave Fouché, shouting at me, trust your instruments, trust your instruments, trust your instruments. And you're cross-checked. Yeah. And everything, I was just looking at all that. And then, and like I said, as soon as I came out of the cloud, Steve, and I could see ground references, snap, it was gone. Yeah, amazing. And, and I guess that's one of the, the big lessons learned, or two of them too, you know. Hey, and you mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes you go through these terrible experiences and my, my instructor knew enough to say, I'm going to let him keep flying. And he's going to learn from this. And boy, did I. And trust in the yeah. instruments, man. It always comes back to aviate, navigate, and communicate, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and you know what, those Steve? Isn't that amazing? And I'm sure that those three words you told every student going through, aviate, navigate, communicate. Every pilot, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how many hours you have. It seems every pilot, fixed wing, rotor wing, knows those three words to get out of a sticky situation. Aviate, navigate, communicate. So what other stories you got for us, brother? Oh, as far as lessons learned, um, I've got one not from the cockpit, but actually from the hangar deck. Um, After I finished my uh, flight instructor tour in Pensacola, I went to what was called my aviation appreciation tour. And I was ship's company uh, aboard USS NASA. That was a big deck amphibious ship, assault ship at the time. It's since been decommissioned. not the most fun in the world. There are different cultures within the Navy, the surface Navy, aviators, submariners, and the SEALs. They're all different animals cut from different cloth. But anyway, I got through that. And then I went back to my, I did my department head tour at the 04 level. Uh, you could do your department head tour. And it's back to the same squadron, HC2, Helicopter Combat Support Squadron 2. Uh, I went out to Italy as the aviation or the uh, officer in charge. Uh, Nothing really big happened there. That was pretty uneventful. Um, Got back to the squadron and a few months later, we had a change of command. And uh, it was at that point that this squadron changed its name to, uh, it was called at the time, the Circuit Riders. When it first stood up back in 1987, they took the name, the more famous name, the Fleet Angels. Uh, That's a squadron that has a very storied history. Very famous squadron. Yeah. Yep. So we took that name and a day or two later, the new CEO is talking to me. He's out on the hangar deck. We're up on the uh, the second level where all the offices are looking down at things. And I've heard of this guy. I'd never served him in the past. I'd heard his name in the community and he didn't know me from Adam either. 
And he turned around. I never forgot this. Uh, and I hope when you air this, I'm, I'm going to contact him and I hope he listens to this because I don't know if he remembers this conversation. Um, we're looking out over the hangar bay and we're chatting. And at one point he turned around to me and he said something to the effect of my job is to enforce the rules. He said, Steve, you break them when it's the right thing to do. So this guy doesn't know me, but he put that kind of trust in me to recognizing that there are situations that will come up that are not covered by standing regs and policy. You do what you need to, 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 to get things done safely. I never forgot that. I just thought extending that kind of trust, that was leadership at the highest level. And I never forgot that. That was Skipper Tim Hewitt. Great guy. Boy, is it? that a great lesson learned so many people there are a number of people that i flew with steve who were always by the book and as you know when you're flying not all situations are by the book and they require you sometimes think very outside the box particularly in combat particularly in some kind of conflict yeah and uh i once heard from a guy who who said leadership is about Patting those people on the back that are your rule makers and your rule breakers. Right. Because so many times the guys in a lot of situations that I saw in my military career, my flying career, we often, the tough combat missions went to the rule breakers, not the rule makers, because we know the mission we get done. Unfortunately, I never had to use that get out of jail free card that he gave me. But the fact that he trusted me, someone he didn't know, was to me just the the exemplar of leadership. I just never forgot that. It was just amazing to me. It was like, wow, (laughs) that was something. And the other thing, too, about that, too, Steve, is it gives you an incredible boost of confidence, too, because, you know, you know, the boss trusts you. And when you go out on a mission and you go out and do things and flying. You know that the boss trusts you. Believe it or not, I've, and I'm sure you have too, worked for some commanders that didn't trust his troops. But the ones that did trust their troops, those are names I'll never forget. Amen to that. (laughs) Those are the great leaders who I will always remember. And a matter of fact, many of them I still have great relationships with who would tell me, hey, if we ever go to war and they ask me who my top three pilots are, it'd be this person, this person, and you. Right. And uh, that was some pretty cool stuff. So so you deployed during Desert Storm also, didn't you? Desert Shield, Desert Storm? I did not. I finished my first operational tour when I was in Bahrain in Italy uh, in late 89. And then yeah. I started my instructor tour. Yeah. Um, and when Desert Shield hit and then Desert Storm, they weren't looking for H3 guys, but we had a couple of Marine Cobra gunship guys who got their orders cut uh, short and they took off to the desert. But uh, I was safely tucked away in Pensacola at the time of Desert Storm. Training yeah, I, I joke with my family and friends that the closest I ever came to combat was, you know, being inserted between the Iranians and the Iraqis back in 87 and then being in the Pentagon on 9-11 where you really didn't have a way to fight back on that. <laughs> really? What were yeah. you doing at the Pentagon? Tell so, us your Pentagon 9-11 story. These are listeners love these kinds of stories. You were in the Pentagon when it got hit on 9-11? I was. I So to wrap up, I finished my department head tour with that great CEO I just talked about. I went to the Naval War College for a year. Not too many places. You can get a master's degree in one year. Uh, and my family lived in New England, so I could see them just about any weekend I wanted to. Uh, Of course, you know, that good deal ends and it's payback time. And they said, you're going to the Joint Staff Pentagon. And I was uh, the J4, Logistics 
directorate. Uh, and I work, Mark, I have to say, I work with some just phenomenal people. Uh, my first 10 months there, I was in charge of all joint publications that dealt with, I had to coordinate the updates and the new ones for, that dealt with anything logistics related, any four dash whatever pub. Uh, I then went to- Fascinating. Yeah, it was fascinating. Kind of the staff work that people kind of dread as far as the Pentagon, but it was still, I learned something from it. I learned about, you know, how to prioritize issues, you know, whether it's a, so when they went through that process, it was, you know, are there administrative comments, you know, you're changing happy to glad there's substantive comments and then there's critical comments. And so you learn to prioritize, you know, what's important, what is really important here. Let's get that taken care of. Um, I got done doing that and I was sent to the, uh, at the time it was called the uh, Armed Forces Staff College, now the Joint Forces Staff College down in Norfolk. Uh, And when I came back, I was assigned to the J4's Logistics Readiness Center. They were tied at the hip with the J3 guys. So when I got there, it was, let's see, I first got to the J4 in February of 99. I got back from the Joint or the Armed Forces Staff College uh, in March of 2000. And at the time, uh, it was the tail end of the Clinton administration. And so humanitarian relief efforts and things like that are, are a big thing at the time. I've got, a, I've got an interesting story about a humanitarian relief effort. If you're interested, I'll tell you that. But uh, I'll get to the Pentagon one first. So I learned I learned how to spell tip fit. I worked with some phenomenal Air Force strategic lift guys, um, C-141, C-17, C-5 guys. I worked with three or four of them, and they just taught me a lot. It was just a great, great experience to work with those guys. As far as 9-11, I, I remember one of those Air Force guys, his name was Glenn Lang. He came out of our boss's office. We worked for an Air Force colonel at the time. Uh, I was a fairly newly minted 05, a Navy commander when this happened. And he came running out of his office and he was going, holy shit, holy shit. And he turned the television channel. uh, And I remember he turned it to NBC because it was the Today Show. Uh, And there's the North Tower smoking. And I remember this because I remember it was either Katie Couric or Matt Lauer at the time saying that, you know, somebody said they thought it was like a Cessna that flew into it. And I'm looking up at that building thinking, I was just in the South Tower three weeks ago. That is no Cessna, whatever that was. We're watching the news for a while. And this guy, Glenn, says, well, what happens is we start getting ready to move airplanes uh, that uh, that logistics readiness center. We worked very closely with the U.S. Transportation Command, Transcom, moving planes around the world all the time. So we got right on it and started, you know, getting, making plans to move medical supplies and so forth into McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. I am in the our conference room with different Air Force guy, guy named uh, Rich Wahlberg, um, and we're sitting there. And I was writing I something down. I know Rich Wahlberg. Do you really? Yes. How do you know him? Wahlberg. He worked at the TACC, the Tanker Airlift Control Center, when I was there at okay. Scott Air Force Base. Yeah. Great American. He and I, yeah, he really was. I just had a great time with him. He, he and this guy, Glenn Lang, they were just super, super people to work with. Yeah. Um, we were at our conference room table, and I was looking down, writing something. And Mark, at this point, I look up at the TV just in time to see a fireball. And I was having trouble processing it because I looked up just in time to see see it. And for a second, I thought, did some additional fuel from that first plane just cook off and explode? 
And I looked at Rich Wahlberg and he looked at me wide eyed and he said, did you see that? I said, no, what? And he said, they're going to replay this, watch this. And sure enough, and they showed the second plane hit. Um, at that point, the, the other Air Force guy I worked with, Glenn Lang, he said, hey guys, we could be the next target right here in this building. And sure enough, 30 minutes later, we're briefing our director, Admiral Holder. He was the director of the J-4 at the time. We told him what we were doing. Um, we got done briefing him and he started to talk. And at one point he said, okay, I seriously doubt they're going to keep the national airspace closed for the entire day. Mark, within a minute of him saying that, I heard it first. I heard the plane. Now I am on pretty much the other side of the building. I was in the C-ring. Yeah. Um, if that plane had gone, I think that was flight 77, had it gone up and over the outer ring from where it hit and went into the courtyard, you know, ground zero, as they call it, and hit on that same path, uh, it might have been a near run thing for us in the office we were in. Um, regardless, uh, I was on the other side of the building. I heard it first. I heard this very muffled whoop. And then the building swayed and the hair on my neck stood up because I did not need Fox News or CNN to tell me what happened. I knew he'd just been hit by another plane. So uh, and even Admiral Holder, he, he said, "Ooh, that was big. So the rest of this gets a little hazy at times. You know, it was a day, I think, for all of us, vivid, vivid memories and other parts of it are a bit of a blur. But eventually, even on the side of the building I was on, the smoke became too much. Uh, and there was a, a re I remember this eerie recording that was going on out in the hall saying there was an emergency in the building, evacuate. So we left our office to go down into the National Military Command Center. Um, we are down there and that's normally a very quiet place. And it was like Wall Street. People were screaming and yelling. Uh, guys were given some of the J-4 people were giving verbal authorization to start moving planes to McGuire. Uh, at one point, my boss was in a meeting. He comes out of the meeting and says, Steve, there are some helicopters, some H1s inbound. Be on it. You're going to site R. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. You heard that Raven Rock is what it's also called. It is like an alternate site for the Pentagon. Cold War era type thing in case, you know, bad yeah. things happen, you know, during that, that time yeah. frame. So I realized, okay, I got to get on this helicopter. We had a separate badge that was required to get into this site R place. So I had to go upstairs and I looked down the hallway and the smoke is so thick, I can't see the end of it. Oh. And I'm thinking, oh boy, here we go. So I took a big, a big breath, deep breath, and I ran down the hallway. I hit the four digit cipher code on the cipher lock and I went in, I grabbed the ID out of my desk. And then I kind of laughed about this mark afterwards because I felt like Steve Martin in the movie, The Jerk, because I'm grabbing a binder that has phone numbers and I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, I need this and I need this. And I had all kinds of stuff in my hands as I left. Um, I ran back downstairs and then I went outside. This is on the river entrance side of the Pentagon. Uh, the helicopters had landed. But at this point, Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz and his staff had pretty much commandeered them. They got on them and they took off. So I had to wait a few minutes for a, it was a Marine CH-53 Echo to show up. I get on that, we fly up there. And as we depart, the ramp, the rear ramp door had not closed yet. And I'm like, as it closed, I watched, I took a look at the smoke. And I just remember oh. thinking, I cannot believe this is happening to us today. Anyway, got to site R. Uh, we were getting set up. 
making establishing comms back with the Pentagon. Uh, at one point, I came around the corner and almost bowled over Paul Wolfowitz. He, he's a rather short guy, and I almost knocked him over. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, wouldn't have been a good career move, I suppose. Um, we were there till about 930 at night, and I think they were trying to decide whether or not they were going to abandon the Pentagon. Because the, they are, there were like yeah. three by three foot oak beams that were still part of the original construction back in 1943 timeframe. Yeah. And I think they were worried that were, they were going to burn all the way around the, the rings. Um, that didn't happen. And so we got called back. I think they wanted to send the message politically that we're going to stand our post here. Yeah. So we got called back. I went home that night. I stayed home the next day. I, I was called and said, stay home. We're going to start going on shift work. You're coming in tomorrow night from seven o'clock at night and you'll be going seven in the morning. You'll do seven days and then you'll get three days off. And they were on shift work like that until well after I left, which was in summer of 2002. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that amazing? That shift. I, I remember the same thing, man. Okay. You're going to be on this shift. You're going to be on this shift. You know? Yeah. The, the airplane was really... Hit. The airplanes hit like at 545 in the morning on the, on the West coast. And right. one of my wife's friends called Steve and said, where's Mark, where's Mark, where's Mark? Well, he's asleep here next to me. It's 545 in the morning. This is wake him up. An airplane just ran into one of the towers in New York. And I remember hearing her say that and rolling over in bed, grabbing the remote and turning on Fox news and seeing the burning building. Half of me was saying, how in the world did an airline pilot with all these tens of thousands of hours run into a building on a Cavu day, clear mm-hmm. invisibility, unlimited day. And then the other part of me was screaming, you're under attack. Get up, get going, get dressed. Yeah. You're, you're going to, you got to get in the second airplane hit, you know, just a few minutes later, I jumped out of bed, got in the shower, and my wing commander called while I was at the shower. I was only in the shower three minutes. And he called about a minute and a half into that saying, Mark's recalled, bring him in now. And I remember driving to the base and and like you, man, I'm already in mission mode. I'm already doing yeah. tanker math in my head, driving to the base, thinking, okay, West Coast, what cities do we got to protect? Okay, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego. All right, that's our West Coast bases, okay? Uh, F-15s going fast. Oh, got to think about F-18s out of Lemoore too. All right. Well, they'll be able to cover all this. I, it was amazing that I was doing all this mission planning in my head, driving into work at a fairly quick speed, yeah. you know, and I remember a Washington uh, state trooper, we we're living in Spokane, pulling up next to me and he saw me in uniform, you know, saw me in my flight suit and everything gives me a thumbs up, you know, like you okay. And I, go like this, you know, are you okay? You know, and he goes, yep. And he just sped off in front of me. Boy, we really didn't know what to do. Did we? We yeah, were really was, caught flat footed, weren't we? Yeah. So you were in bed lying next to your wife. I yeah. was at work. And when this first happened, when the first tower was hit, I called my wife. Now she was out walking my daughter who was like, I think eight years old at the time. Yeah. No, 2000. Yeah. She's about eight. So she was out walking with a friend with my daughter in a stroller. Yeah. And Alvin left a message. I said, Hey, there's something really wild going on in New York. You got to come home and, you know, when you get home, turn on the TV. Well, then the second building gets hit and we get hit. So I called and left another message and said, look, there's a lot going on here. I'm okay. But my wife didn't get that message before she heard about it, because when she's out walking, one of the school moms came by and said, did you hear the Pentagon was just hit? My wife was like, I got to get home. home." Yeah. She didn't know for a bit. Now, my brother, God bless him. My brother saved the day for my family because 
as this starts to really ramp up in the office we're in, you know, people are talking back and forth. I'm on the phone. And as I hang up the phone, one of the guys I work with said, Captain Bates calling for Commander Bates. And I'm having trouble processing that. Like, what? <laughs> captain Bates for Commander Bates. Well, my brother was a captain in the Army Reserve at the time, and he used that rank. And of course, people don't know, is this a Navy captain yeah. or an Air Force yeah. Army or oh, captain? Yeah. They didn't know. So yeah. he just wanted to make sure he got through. So yeah. I picked up the phone and I say, John, I am fine. Call everybody and tell them I'm okay. I can't talk. And yeah. he did that. He got the message back to my family because uh, cell phones were relatively new a couple of years old at the yep. time and the cell yep. phone grid in the DC area just got clobbered. It went down. Yeah. Yeah. I got, Crazy. I got recalled and I didn't come home till the next day because obviously, you know, the tanker missions went through the roof. I'll, yeah. I'll never forget this, Steve. I remember seeing this brief that when the towers got hit, there was nine tankers on alert, I think around the United States by four 30 that afternoon, there was 127. That's how I think I remember you talking about that on a previous episode, Mark. Yeah. And I was just astounded. That's yeah. crazy. It's a freaking yeah. lot of gas. Cause yeah. I was looking at 12 million pounds a day just for the West coast, just to do those five cities. But isn't that interesting yeah. how you and I go into this military mode at the flip of a switch. Once we figured out we are under attack, our brains shifted into that military mode and we're already thinking solutions to yeah. really complex problems. And of course, as you know, the logistics of this was hugely complex. Oh, yeah. It was because there was fighters already airborne that needed gas. And of course, FEMA needed to get our first mission out of Spokane, Steve, was a FEMA team that had to go home from Billings or uh, Bozeman, Montana. That was our very first mission, not supporting any fighters or anything like that. We had to go pick up this FEMA team. It was the NTSB and the FEMA um, GO team that that late, went home, packed and went up to New York and started trying to figure out what happened. I mean, it was just crazy. Wow. But then yeah. we got airplanes that are going all over. So and uh, I deployed eight days after 9-11 to the Middle East for my first deployment, flying tankers. Yeah. It was amazing, amazing time. Yeah. So yeah. you got so, to you got to touch doctrine pretty closely, the doctrine manuals for logistics. That was that must have been interesting. Talk to everybody, talk to my listeners about how the joint staff and the military develops their doctrine on how they're going to do things. Because this is a really kind of a fascinating process, how we do this. It, it really is. It, it is a very heavily and well-coordinated effort. Um, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that so they will put out a, a say they're revising a joint publication. They will ask everybody, all the stakeholders, the services, the combatant commands, anybody who's got skin in the game, give us your comments, categorize them as either administrative, substantive or critical. Uh, and this will happen a few times. They normally try, as I recall, they try to wrap it up. By the second round, by the second round, they are trying to get these critical comments. This is where some two entities are in disagreement on something and they try and hammer those out. But it, it is it was fascinating. Now, it's kind of a grind. It's staff work, but it was fascinating to watch how this worked and how they would eventually resolve this. You know, and it's, then sometimes somebody had to step in and referee and say, OK, this is what we are doing. It would typically be the joint staff who did that. Um, but it was an interesting observation in how coordination works and the structure 
you know, give me your administrative, substantive and critical. I never forgot that because I kind of used that as a way to prioritize. Okay, what's important here? All right. Do we have a critical comment or a critical disagreement? And, and that's the way it works. And then they finally get it hammered out and they will finalize, you know, the joint pub based on that, that process. So I don't know if you know this, but I was a curriculum director of the Joint Forces Staff College. I taught at the Joint Combined Warfighter School and was a curriculum director there for a long time. When were you there? I was there from 2003 to 2006. Okay. So you got there just a couple of years after I was there. Yeah. Okay. Missed you. One of my probably best assignments, because I wasn't deploying anymore, and probably one of the most educational and informative assignments I had, learning the joint doctrine, but also teaching the campaign planning. It was an amazing assignment. And, yeah. uh, you know, our curriculum there was teaching, obviously, the, the campaign planning cycle, the crisis action planning cycle. We also got into disasters preparedness and how to deal with disasters. But the great thing was being around all of these people from the different services and international partners. That was one of the things that I loved about being there was I was learning from all these other people too. Uh, one of yeah, those I, wonderful assignments I've heard you, Mark, say, I've heard you say that, you know, we, we, we still had some work to do in jointness. Um, and I think recent episodes, but I have to say my joint staff tour, and this is 22 years ago. Yeah. Um, it was really a, a well-oiled machine. I mean, I didn't know about strategic airlift. I had to have those Air Force guys help me. I brought some Navy expertise to the table. It wasn't used all that often, but the one time it was, this same boss, this Air Force colonel came out of a meeting one day and said, hey, Steve, if a Navy ship has a 20 inch by 20 inch hole in it, is that a problem? And I said, no, they compartmentalize the ship. They said zebra, they should be able to patch that up. It shouldn't be a big deal. He goes back into this meeting. He comes out 20 minutes later and he says, how about a 20 by 20 foot hole? I said, that's a problem. Well, the USS Cole had been bombed. That's what they were asking about. So I said, yeah, that's a big problem. <laughs> but it was just, you know, we had Army, Marine and, and several Air Force guys, strategic airlift guys on that team. And it was just one of the most, the hours were ungodly, that shift work, but it was oh. one of the most rewarding tours I had because I worked with great people. And I saw the fruits of my efforts sometimes. Some of the things I did yeah. um, as an example, I came home from work one day and this was probably within days, not more than a week or so of going into Afghanistan and turned on the news and they're telling a story about these humanitarian daily rations, these HDRs that were dropped. Uh, and this time, unlike Kosovo, when they were yellow packets, they had color coded them like a salmon, orangey color. Yep. because they didn't want the yellow to be mistaken for ordnance. Um, so they're telling the story about this airdrop done by a C-17. And I looked over at my wife and I said, I wrote the message that made that happen. So you really got to see the, you know, the efforts of your work. It was not like the grindy staff work where you might leave and never see the, you know, the fruits of your efforts, you know, years down the road. This you really saw in almost real time, um, how you were making a difference, how you contributed. It was pretty cool. My first assignment, my first deployment post 9-11 was to Incirlik Air Base in Turkey. And Steve, these guardsmen start showing up in their tankers. And I'm like, why are you guys here? They said, well, yeah. you got sent here in support of operations in Afghanistan. 
and I'm thinking to my head, what could they possibly be doing? Where are they going? <laughs> and then they said something about humanitarian ops. I went, oh, the C-17 is coming out of Ramstein. Because that's where they were yeah. filling them up with those humanitarian daily rations in those big cardboard boxes, remember? They were putting yeah. 25,000, 26,000 of those daily ration packages in these cardboard boxes that would get out into the slipstream of the airplane and they would kind of come apart and all of those things would fall. And you know what, Steve, I remember somebody bringing one of those to the chaos at Prince Sultan, south of Riyadh. And we sliced that sucker open just to see what was in it. And, you know, the peanut butter and the crackers and all the typical stuff. And of course, what's in every stinking MRE. Yeah. Those little <laughs> bottles of Tabasco. Do you know, I talked to a special forces guy later on that the Afghanis were actually bartering with those little things of Tabasco, like money. No they kidding. loved those little bottles of Tabasco. Oh, they were putting it on all kinds of things. Yeah. Wow. The little bottles of Tabasco <laughs> became uh, international money over there with those little bottles. There were, and you know what, Steve, I, you'll, you'll appreciate this story because you've dealt with this and, and the message that you sent out, we had the special forces guys, obviously in the special ops liaison element at the, at the chaos in Prince Sultan. And they were always getting pictures from Afghanistan that guys would upload on their sat links. And, and one of them came across my desk. And it was this woman that looked like she was 300 years old. I mean, just leather skin, all wrinkly and everything, about four foot nine. And she had a bedspread over her back and had about 50 of those humanitarian daily rations in it and was walking off the drop zone. And Boy. this special forces guy that was taking all these pictures was saying, look at the difference we're making. You guys yeah. might not think that this humanitarian daily ration airdrop stuff in the middle of the night is a big deal, but to the Afghanis, it is a huge deal to be having these, um, uh, hopefully I get this right, halal, the, the Muslim um, humanitarian daily rations right? that were yeah. packaged just for them. And I remember a guy telling me the story about the Muslim chaplain who was helping them put stuff into those packages, which was really fascinating. And he was talking yeah. about the different foods, you know, and the Muslim religion, all those kinds of things and how we went through tons and tons of peanut butter. Peanut butter became one of those things that they all loved as well as these little bottles of Tabasco. But I'll never forget that yeah. picture of that old 300 year old looking lady walking off the drop zone with this big, huge blanket full of those humanitarian daily rations and what a difference that made in their lives. You did a good it work. It certainly gives you a perspective, doesn't it? You know, you think you got problems, you look at this woman who's, you know, cherishing all these meals that to us would be, you know, not much better than, you know, sea rations or something like that. Yeah, but to them, it was a big deal. As well yeah. as the blankets we were dropping. I mean, just that was incredible stuff that these were, C-17s were doing in the middle of the night, dropping 
I think it was 25 to 35,000 of these humanitarian daily rations would go out the back. And there would be, I think, two flights a night. They'd pick two different drop zones that special forces guys would go in and clear out and protect so that all of the villagers could come in and, and sweep up all of the all of the rations. And yeah. there's another picture I remember too, Steve, that you'll enjoy. It was a little girl and she was like all hunched down. All right. She was in her Afghan finery or costume or whatever they wear in the winter, nice and warm. But the reason that the special forces guys took a picture over there as they were driving by, it was she was holding a small American flag. Now think about uh, that. Yeah. Little girl, small American flag. What would the Taliban have done to her? If they'd have found her with that, who knows? Right. But that She's became one of those iconic pictures that got passed around because she was there knowing that the Americans were going to take care of her. And right. that, all, that all started with you and the joint staff, brother. Well, Mark, that, that story is so heartwarming about that older woman with all those HDRs, because I, I assumed it was helping. Again, we as Americans would look at those and think, okay, no big deal. But to know that she had hoarded those, that they were so precious to her, that, that was heartwarming. And that just confirms, um, you know, the good that we were doing and that it, yeah. you know, I can see fruits of my efforts almost immediately. That was great. It, it really did. That one. You know, because you know, we thought the same thing, Steve. You know, okay, you know, we understand, you know, we're attacking them, we're taking care of them, and we're doing these Humro missions, all right? And we really didn't think a lot about those Humro missions, Steve, until the special forces guys had their little sat link and uploaded that picture of this. And I'm, I'm seriously, she looked like she was 300 years old and wow. she was all hunched over, had this big, huge blanket full of these things. And you could see the yellow packages coming out the side as she was right. walking off the drop zone. And the, and the guy had put like a little description in, in the email he sent via the sat link saying, you know, look at this old lady with these 50 some odd humanitarian daily rations, all hunched over, taking care of her family, walking off the drop zone and basically sacrificing her life. Because if the Taliban ever found out she had those things, you know, what would have happened. Oh yeah. Oh, dear and God. and yeah. she just said up yours Taliban, I'm going to go get this stuff, whether you like it or not. And right. she was taking a big risk by doing what she did. So was that little girl and the family, of that little girl. But oh, yet, of course, but yet they realized, you know, they realized, hey, the Americans really are here to help. Yeah, there's some things we screwed up, but hey, fog of war, man. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So what did you do after you left the joint staff? Um, I if I could share one more story, Mark. Sure. You please. mentioned relief efforts before I leave the joint staff tour. Um, so when I first got there, that was the big thing. We were doing a lot of that. Um the joint staff, which certainly our office, worked with all levels of government and multiple organizations. We worked with the White House, the State Department, FEMA, and local governments. Um, here's a story for you, and it tells a, a really good story about the Fairfax County Urban Search and Rescue Team in Fairfax, Virginia. Um, they deployed overseas for these types of things, and we had guys from our office go and visit them and come back and say, these guys are more readily deployable than some military units. <laughs> they have it all marked off in this hangar that they have with pallets and everything is going to go in just a certain place and they know what it is and they're ready to go. Well, they were sent to Taiwan in 1999 after an earthquake. And the beauty of this story is they brought their sniffer dogs who search for people buried in the rubble. 
And for the first time, these dogs actually found people still alive in the rubble and they were saved. They survived. So that's just a really uh, a neat story that, you know, they went over on one of our strategic airlift aircraft. I, I think it was a C-17. Might have still had C-5s or C-41s at the time. But uh, just a, another good story of, you know, coordination with a local government. This is a county in Virginia. And these guys went over there and they saved lives with what they brought over there. Just really neat. And see, people don't understand and realize the tools that we have available. You know, these body sniffing dogs that we used on 9-11 to go through all the rubble too at, at all, both those places. And uh, I know about those dogs because I've lived over in Okinawa and had a lot of disasters that would happen where the whole weight of the American logistics tail and our Air Force and military would get engaged to help our coalition partners. Yeah. The, the tsunami relief, I think, is a is a classic example of that. And what you guys did in your helicopters during that tsunami relief is a story that I hope somebody tells someday because you guys were flying your butts off during the tsunami relief in the Pacific after that big earthquake. Yeah. Yeah, my my joint staff tour market, it opened my eyes to what the United States did. I didn't realize, you know, I used to watch the news and see something, you know, some god awful disaster somewhere around the world and think, oh, that's awful. But I didn't realize, you know, after I was in the joint staff, it was like, oh, we're going to get busy. I'm going to have to go into work because we're going to do something. We're going to move water purifiers or plastic sheeting, you know, the stuff to help people survive in the immediate aftermath of a disaster. The United States was always everywhere providing help to people. It's just an amazing thing that I'm not sure the average taxpayer is aware of. It, it was it's really it was very part of a very rewarding career, I have to say. It really was. You just mentioned something, plastic sheeting. We had a hurricane that went over the Philippines and I was at the TACC, the Tanker Airlift Control Center as a duty officer. They had put me in the West Cell because I had just, I had come directly from Kadena to the West Cell of the TACC. The Philippines got hammered by a typhoon, 190 mile an hour winds. And one of the first missions we sent out of Travis was full of uh, two by fours and plastic sheeting. And I'm like going, what the heck are they doing with this? Why is all this lumber and plastic sheeting going over there? And we had a FEMA guy that worked with us whenever we had these things going on. Mark, it's really quick housing. And I go, what? He says, yeah, we actually have, FEMA actually has plans for a wooden frame that we staple the the plastic sheeting to. Roof, put a roof over your head in, in like 10 minutes. Yeah, you know, you can see through the plastic sheeting and everything, you know, but still it was able to provide quick shelter from the elements, you know, and the, here we are in the Pacific, you know, it rains every, you know, every four o'clock, every, every afternoon, you know, that's just what it does in the Pacific. You can set your clock by it between four and four thirty. There's going to be a big cloud, big thunderstorm going to rain for an hour or two, then it's going to go away. Right. But when you said plastic sheeting, it, it, keyed me into that story about how I'm looking at this thing and I'm like going, what in the world is all yeah. this lumber and plastic sheeting going to the Pacific for? Cause I said, yeah. smarter, smarter heads than mine understood exactly what that was. And then I find out that the FEMA actually has a template on how to set those things up. I was just astounded. Yeah. 
Yeah. doesn't sound like much, but that immediate protection from the elements is key after a disaster like that. And you're like plastic sheeting. What's that? Water bottles I get. And then the, the Ropus, I think the army had these reverse osmosis water purifiers. Uh, there yes. weren't a lot of them, but sometimes those got shipped over too. Yeah. It's yes. just the things needed for immediate survival, that, uh, but we did it all the time. We were always moving strategic lift aircraft around the world, it seemed. And particularly all the medicine that we send all over everywhere. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, Cause obviously after these hurricanes, excuse me, typhoons went through the Philippines, there was all kinds of disease stuff they had to worry about mosquitoes, raw sewage, all these kinds of things. And I was dumbfounded that the TACC had like a checklist of all the stuff that needed to go on the airplane. And here's the stuff that needs to be there within the first 72 hours. Here's the stuff that needs to be there the first 96 hours. You know, I mean, it was, it was amazing to watch. And just to see all these airplanes start moving across the Pacific. And of course, the tanker bridge going up to refuel the C5, C-17s that were going over. Gosh, amazing story. Yeah. All right, brother. Anything else? No, I think that wraps it up. Um, I'm going for an hour and 45 minutes now, man. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'll, I'll wrap up my career. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I failed to mention that one of the silver linings from that kind of difficult first deployment I did to Bahrain, yeah. uh, the privilege of flying Bob Hope and Connie Stevens on my aircraft. And we had a second one come over a few weeks after I got there. They had Barbara Eden of I Dream of Genie fame, as well as Lee Greenwood on it. But I got to fly them out to a ship at Anchorage about a mile off of the uh, uh, Bahrain, uh, Manama, and uh, they did their Christmas show in 1987. I got to fly him on Christmas Day. So that was kind of an honor, to say the least. Um, otherwise, I finished my joint staff tour and then went on to my twilight tour. My last tour with the Navy was at the Naval Academy. Uh, I was the associate chair of the history department, which is a glorified way of saying that I scheduled rooms for classes and final exams <laughs> and midterms. Uh, but I did some teaching as well. I taught a Western civilization course, uh, naval history, or they call it naval heritage and an ethics class. And I retired from there in 2005. Um, I, uh, 21 years. Yeah. Uh, I've been living in Maryland since. I haven't moved yet. Uh, waiting to see where my daughter settles down. But uh, <laughs> 21 years, been living here in Maryland, longest I've ever lived in one house in in my entire life. Uh, that's that's cool. So tell, you got to fly Bob Hope around. What was that like flying somebody of his caliber uh, around in your in your helos? Uh, it was neat. It was a very short flight because from where we were at the airport, once you cleared the the upwind numbers of the runway. Uh, the ship was about a half mile, less than a mile away. It was right there. It's at Citra Anchorage. I don't know if, how familiar you are yeah, with our name. Uh, it was right there. So it was, this wasn't a five minute flight. Uh, we dropped him off and then we got off and that was it. He did a show that night and he did a second one the following day. And I got to attend that second one. So uh, it was just neat to be able to say, flew Bob Hope. I got to think there's very few people in the world. Uh, who can say that right now? So just an incredible honor and privilege to do that. Did you get to meet him and talk to him even that short flight? Um, I did not. I did get his autograph. We had him, you know, they were all signing yeah. these little index cards. Yeah. Um, got a picture taken with Connie Stevens after that show that I attended. So uh-huh. uh, real morale booster because I was about a month from heading home at that point. Yeah. And he also had these uh, young girls, these dancers, they were called the Super Bowl dancers. They were probably, gosh, if they were out of high school, that would be surprising. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, not the most talented and coordinated dancers, 
but they were pretty and they smelled nice and it was so much better than the JP five jet fuel and the hydraulic oil <laughs> of the aircraft. All so over the deck and all over the very planes. Pleasant. Yeah, it was very pleasant. So it was a neat thing. I once got to talk to Marie Osmond, who had been on several of his USO shows. And I asked her, oh, I, wow. said, I said, hey, Johnny Carson used to have a whole bunch of people on. And I had my top three that I wanted to meet. And Bob Hope was one of them. I said, what was he really like? And, and Marie Osmond told me he's a consummate gentleman. He loves the troops. He loves he being around people, loves being around people, loves entertaining. And if I remember right, that tour that you got to fly him on was like his very last one. And people had asked him, are, are you up for one more? And he said, yeah, actually, I think I am. And that was the last USO tour he did was the one that you got to fly him around on the one during desert shield, desert storm. That was the very last one he did. I think think mine, Mark, it was 1987, Christmas day, 87. And so I think he did do is that was his penultimate one. Um, I think he did his last one as part of desert shield, desert storm. He did do more after I flew him. So uh, and amazing because when I flew him, he was well into his eighties then to get on a plane and spend that many hours overseas is just astounding that guy was just dedicated to the troops yeah really was and see marie had been with him on his desert shield desert storm tour and said you know it exhausted him when on our way home he was exhausted because he's like he was like you said he's in his 80s he went home extremely satisfied that he had one more in him and got to do it and came home joyful because he said my last one was probably my best one so it's just it was funny talking to her about what he was like and and he says, she said, he was always a consummate gentleman, always asking, is there anything you need? You got any problems? I, I, just a great, wonderful man. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, we've been talking for over an hour and 45 minutes, man. This has been great. Yeah, it has. This has that been time fantastic. Back. I really appreciate you coming on the uh, Lesson from the Cockpit show and sharing your lessons learned. Commander Steve well, Bates, United States Navy Sea King pilot. Well, thank you, Mark. It, like I said, it was a privilege. I, I don't have nearly as a compelling story as many of your guests, but thrilled to be able to do this for you. But see, we got to see a different aspect of helicopter operations and particularly humanitarian stuff and moving logistics, a logistics look that a lot of people don't understand, particularly when you're doing underway replenishing and getting involved in these humanitarian operations. That's something that we haven't talked about yet. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing those lessons with us. You bet. Thank you. This was really a fascinating episode, folks. I didn't know some of the things that the Sea King helicopters were doing, and it's always incredible to hear people's 9-11 stories. On our show next week, Steve is going to tell you the history of the Sea King helicopter and rotary wing aviation in the United States Navy, particularly a mission that the Sea King was doing for a while that was only a one-way mission. You'll have to find out next week what that is. The Lessons from the Cockpit show is sponsored by Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. These are four, six, and eight foot long vinyl graphics of airplanes, and they're really, really detailed, folks. They even have the arming handles on the sidewinders with all the stenciling. So please go by wallpilot.com and purchase a couple of these wall graphics for your home, office, or hangar. That's how we support this show. That's how we keep going here. Also, go by and grab a copy of my book, Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit, which this show is named after, found in all four formats on Amazon. 
This and previous episodes of my show are found on my website, marcusera.com, under the podcast pull-down box. And I think I'm going to do a couple episodes just on humanitarian operations. Did you know that we sent a large deck amphibious assault ship and an aircraft carrier using killbox procedures for a humanitarian operation? A lot of people don't know that. Look forward to talking to you next week here on the Lessons from the Cockpit Show. Please share this with all of your family, friends, and loved ones from my website, marcusera.com, and we'll talk to you again next week.